Welcome to Transforming Education, Leadership Lessons. This podcast is hosted by Northwestern College. We're bringing you thought leaders who are influencing education and the world around them. Each episode provides new leadership lessons so you can learn how to embrace your own influence. Leadership has nothing to do with title or position. That leadership has to do with impact. And the role of a leader isn't to create followers, it's to enable more leaders. Take away leadership qualities that inspire. I think good leaders really get people brought together around a cause and can inspire them to be better than they were yesterday or to do something great. Care about others. We need teachers out there that are caring and compassionate and are interested in the student beyond the discipline that they're teaching. Show people they matter. We don't have a bullying problem. We don't even have a gun problem. We have a mattering problem. By knowing you matter. You matter to yourself first before you can matter to someone else. So further your impact. When you just authentically love your students, I just don't think you can help but grow. Understand your core values. You can tell pretty quickly any core leader, whether or not he or she is there for the mission at hand for the people that they serve or whether they're there for themselves. And align your mission. Everything we do on campus, whether it's someone in the maintenance department or someone teaching in the classroom or to coach, uh, it should tie back to our mission of impacting students for the cause of Christ. Discover how to use your influence to inspire others. That is why the relationships is so critical in everything we do, because when people know you care about them, they know yet they have your best interest, and then it sinks in. Let's welcome our host, Gary Richardson. Thank you, Leslie. And I want to thank all of you for listening to Transforming Education Leadership Lessons. I know that you have many options and your time is valuable, and because of that, we bring in thought partners to inspire and influence your leadership. Today, we will be discussing leadership lessons with Peter DeWitt. Peter is a former K-5 teacher, principal, and is also a school leadership coach who runs competency-based workshops and provides keynotes nationally and internationally focusing on school leadership, collaborative cultures, and instructional leadership, as well as fostering inclusive school climates. Peter has written the Finding Common Ground column for Education Week the past 10 years and has garnered numerous awards for his work locally, nationally, and globally. Peter is the author and an author of many things, the book Instructional Leadership, Creating Practice Out of Theory. And we want to spend some time, extra time on this with Peter as this is textbook we will use in our graduate program for our educational administration program. And the course name is Instructional Leadership. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Gary, thanks for having me. I guess I picked the right title for a book. <laughs> yes, uh, it fits right in. You know, I've never been accused of being real smart. And when I started to read and get into your website a little bit, I noticed that you do your own podcast and the topic of the podcast is instructional leadership. So there I go trying to do a podcast on somebody that actually is the person that we should be talking to about <laughs> instructional leadership. Anyway, we thank you for being here and wonder if you'd just give us a little background about yourself so we get to know you a little better. I think you said the best in the, in the bio. I taught for 11 years. I was a school principal for eight years. I started writing the Finding Common Ground blog for Ed Week 10 years ago. Soon after that, I had already finished my doctoral work probably a year before that. Turned my doctoral work into a book for Corwin. And then a few years later, they came calling and asked me if I would work with John Hattie. I think right. I've always been, I've always felt very fortunate because of being a teacher. I loved being a teacher and that I 
loved being a principal. And then just, I feel like I've had a master class over the past seven or eight years of, of working with John and, and many other people, you know, taking the show on the road and getting to meet participants and those that I coach or running workshops and all that stuff. So that's primarily, yeah, what I've been doing. I found it particularly interesting that when reading your book, you actually lived out changing your, your lifestyle a little bit kind of parlay that into how that can help current principals, administrators. So how, how did that happen? How'd you go about it? We'd be interested to, to know. Do you mean like just in general of moving into, you know, doing leadership coaching and everything else? No, just the healthy lifestyle that you took oh, on. Healthy. That, oh, that part of the lifestyle. Okay. Yeah. Uh, or unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. No, it's definitely been healthier. I think the story is the same as anybody else. I have been on the road probably 45 weeks a year up until COVID. And although you feel fortunate because you're doing your own work, you're writing books and all that and meeting great people, you're on a plane a lot and in hotel rooms alone a lot. Yeah. And I happened to see a picture of myself and I kept looking at pictures and I was like, wow, I look really heavy in those pictures. Uh, <laughs> that picture makes me look really heavy. And then I realized there wasn't the picture that made me look heavy. I just was. And I didn't know how I got to that place because I had been a long distance runner and all that stuff. I just totally looked at the food I eat. I looked at the exercise that I was doing and made more of a commitment. I actually made a commitment to meditation. I do a daily meditation practice, which has been very helpful for mindfulness, anxiety, that kind of stuff. I would say over a year, I lost 35 pounds. Nice. Yeah, now I just, you know, now I keep it off. It's been great being home. I, I talked to a lot of people that said, you know, in the year that of COVID when they've been home, they've actually gained weight, but I've lost weight. And it's because I, I actually bought a Peloton. I bought a, I bought a road bike that I actually leave up north. My mom lives an hour north in the Adirondacks. And I took it up there and I ride my bike through the Adirondacks. And I used to cross-country ski about 35 years ago when I was in high school. And I picked back up this this winter as well. So uh, yeah, I'm just continuing the healthy lifestyle that way. I think it's important. The COVID-19 could be something that we can call the weight gain, I, I suppose, during the last year. You brought up COVID and how has this year affected learning and specifically what you think about learning loss? And is it real? What have you found out? Yeah, that's a, that's a deep question. So last March, I came home from a work trip I was in the UK. I was I had a week home before I was supposed to go to Australia. That trip never happened because of COVID. And what I decided to do, because the book that, you know, that we're talking about here, Instructional Leadership, honestly came out in mid-February. So it came out about three weeks before COVID. Never a really great time to publish a book. Right. And uh, what happened is I ended up getting on Facebook because I really looked at it from a sense of calm. I just, I want to breathe. I'm on the road a lot. I don't know how long I'm going to be here kind of thing. I got on Facebook and there were two teaching pandemic pages and there were 210,000 members. Hmm. And I remember just going back to it every day and just reading what like teachers were writing and what school leaders were writing. And I ended up taking pulled 950 comments and I put them in an Excel spreadsheet and I actually coded them based on the instructional leadership premise that I have. And I wrote a blog called six reasons why students aren't showing up. It honestly got about a million views for over a few weeks. It really opened up an opportunity for me where I wrote some blogs on the student perspective. I actually surveyed students. I this teacher perspective. I surveyed teachers. It led into me writing a blog that ended up doing very, very well too on mental health of school principals. 
And then of course, all my work that was supposed to be within person went to remote. What I've learned is that, you know, when I talked about the six reasons students weren't showing up, that came from a perspective of the fact that I was doing leadership coaching and we were doing remote coaching. I coached leadership teams in California. I'm based in upstate New York and we were doing remote walkthroughs. Something I devised, I wanted to see how can we do remote walkthroughs to just see what the experience is. Non-judgmental, it is not up to me to judge what's going on, just to get a sense of what's happening. What I found to be true is that there were students who were essential workers, like their parents, you know, said, hey, you can do school at whatever time you want. It's asynchronous. You're going to go work with us and make more money for the family. Sometimes they were the babysitter for their siblings. Like I will never forget the first time doing a remote walkthrough teacher had a student turn on their zoom on their camera and they had their baby sister in their lap huh. and they were babysitting at the same time. So I really dove into that. So I think what we need to understand from all this is that students have always been in complicated situations. They've always been a caregiver of it. They've always had to work a job to help pay for stuff at home. They've always had these kind of issues. One of the things that I wrote is student-teacher relationships. If you didn't have a strong relationship with your student before COVID, and they didn't necessarily have to come, you know, like they could do the asynchronous, that's when you saw students ghosting or just not showing up. All these things that were definitely issues before COVID just were so much more in our face during COVID. Over time, I would say that there were teachers that adapted very well. They learned how to engage differently. Listen, I had to. I went from running a webinar once every few months to every single day. And you have to learn how to engage your students and adults can be as critical as students can. So we know that there were adults that adapted to that kind of situation. As far as the learning loss goes, I created a web show for EdWeek called A Seat at the Table that started last June. And I've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of experts about equity and race and grading and assessment and you know deep learning experiences and all that stuff. And every time we've talked about COVID learning loss, they've actually cringed at those words because they said, listen, we've never been through a pandemic before. Kids don't look at this as, oh, I have COVID learning loss. It's just, they are where they are. So we have to understand where they right. are, not how much they've lost and all that stuff, because that's a deficit mindset. And quite honestly, that's no different than during a non-COVID time anyway. Every new school year, you had teachers and leaders that said, oh, these kids are so far behind. I mean, this is not something new. So when it comes to this whole COVID learning loss, there's been such a hyper focus on it that it sets up a deficit mindset. And what the researchers that I've interviewed have said is, you know, we really need to be able to say, we've never been through a pandemic before. The experiences were not all the same. We know that equity was not there, but equity hasn't been there. But what we need to be able to do is look at where students are right now and start to understand where to dive in and start helping them. Maybe it's time that we actually start doing something about equity as well. And I think that's part of the growth that I have found over the past year, because I've written a lot of blogs over the years on deficit mindsets when it comes to ELL students, deficit mindsets when it comes to, I mean, in collaborative leadership, another one of my books, I talked about meet, model, and motivate, where we have to start meeting people where they are, not where we expect them to be. And we know that we can have an implicit bias based on color of skin, zip code, last name, whatever it is. Sure. So that deficit mindset's always there. And maybe we need to move on from the COVID learning loss discussion and just say, this is where kids are. And I want to say the other thing that I think is really important here, I don't want to sound judgy, 
but there have been too many springs, both as a principal and in the role I'm in now, that I've heard people say, I just want to get through the spring. I just want to get through this month. You know, the end of the school year is four weeks away. We just have to keep the reins on the kids and, you know, because they really want summer and all that stuff. It's pretty typical. Yep. Yeah, it's very typical. And this year, like last March or last April and May, I heard from leaders that said, we just want to get through the spring, which I totally get. It's COVID. It's a pandemic. Nobody was traveling. You know, we didn't have a vaccine. But the same discussion is still happening now. We just need to get through the spring. And the problem with that is that when we talk about something like COVID learning loss, then if we're going to talk about COVID learning loss, we have to talk about the attitude we had during the spring, because that whole thing of we just need to get through the spring leads us to an even worse case scenario in the fall. So it's not a time to get through as much as it's a time to learn from. And I get it. We have all had personal and professional challenges. Many of us have experienced personal tragedies. Teaching from home is not easy. We know all of those things. But I think that we're too easy to say COVID learning loss because students didn't do that at home. Part of it is the fact that every time we hit a spring, whether it's COVID or not, every time we hit a spring and we say, we just need to get through this time and get to the summer, we're contributing to that loss too. If I'm hearing you right, the attitude is part of the issue. But my question would remain, is there a greater degree of learning loss because of the last year? I don't know if we know that or not, because NWEA put out a study pretty early on to show that reading and literacy had stayed pretty much the same. Math was down a few points, but even in that study, they said that they did not have a large enough group to actually have an understanding of what that looks like. Your better question, which you had in there, is you know, this hyper-focus that we have on it now, I think is important. And I don't want to give off the wrong impression here. It's not that COVID learning loss is not a real thing. It's just that if we only keep focusing on COVID learning loss and we don't talk about the other factors and we don't talk about what to do when they get in front of us right now, then it's still going to continue to be a loss, if that makes sense. And I think much to your question about the hyper-focus because of COVID, I think this is something that I taught in high poverty city schools and I was a principal in a rural suburban school. Jonathan Kozel talked about this back in the 1990s with Savage Inequalities. The reality is in the past, there has been this kind of discussion that's happened, but it hasn't impacted every school around the world. It's been easy to be able to say, well, that just happens at those schools in those high poverty areas or those city schools. Because of COVID, it's more of a hyper-focus because of the fact that everybody has been going through this. And maybe that is actually a good thing in a way, because it means that instead of just using lip service when we talk about words like equity, maybe what it means is that we're actually going to do something about it Mm -hmm. instead of just using the words and not doing anything about it, if that makes sense. Yeah. So just to shift gears just a little bit here, Peter, what's one thing that you're working on right now that might surprise our listeners? Uh, so might surprise, I don't know if it would <laughs> necessarily surprise you. Um, I'm, I'm a pretty boring guy. Well, there are a few things. Number one, I've created a few courses through Thinkific, which is a platform. So I created an eight-week course on instructional leadership, an eight-week course on collaborative leadership. And I've created a year-long instructional leadership coaching process 
that people can can get into through the Thinkific platform that I have. So that's been a step-by-step comprehensive model on school leadership coaching that I've actually been working on. It's 11 modules. It's based on a cycle of inquiry, but it's also based on the book, Instructional Leadership, Creating Practice Out of Theory. I have a book coming out in the fall called Collective Leader Efficacy, Strengthening School Teams. And it's about taking the collective efficacy model that is often with teachers and it's developing it through a leadership stance. And the reason why I say that is because very often when we talk about collective teacher efficacy, the principles always sort of, well, the principal can do this to set up collective teacher efficacy. The principal can set up this dynamic or this climate. And yet we know from Ken Leithwood's work that the principal is second to teachers when it comes to impacting student learning. So my philosophy is that collective teacher efficacy leaves the leader out sometimes. And what we have to be able to do is look at our instructional leadership teams from a school climate standpoint and start talking about what role does the school principal play in this? And therefore you've got collective leader efficacy and what makes that a little bit different is that anytime you've got a, an administrator, and I say that in air quotes, anytime you've got an administrator involved, what will happen is there's a shift in status. People won't necessarily talk around the table until the leader talks first, I've been there. I was there as a teacher, I was you know, there as a leader, I was there as a, when I'm a coach or I'm running workshops, people default to the principal. So I'm really looking at how do we build more of this collaborative space where we have a, a shared conviction. John Hattie, Jenny Donahue and I wrote an article a few months ago for the Ontario Principals Council and we talked about collective, collective efficacy being a shared conviction. All I'm saying is how does the principal become an active member of that shared conviction where they can focus on learning and that that is instructional leadership. So it's collective leader efficacy. I'm wondering why you're talking is, which I would agree that once an administrator is involved, the dynamics change. So how does teacher leadership come into play? And in Iowa, that's it's a statewide initiative and it has been for about seven years. I did some leadership coaching through that administrative program. And what you said is spot on is, there are effective administrators. Well, there's many effective administrators, but when we're talking about instructional leadership, what I found is that in those roles, they do have to set the vision. If they're not comfortable setting the vision, then you're probably headed for a not so effective instructional approach. But when they've allowed and trusted their teacher leaders to take over a major part of the instructional leadership in the building, everything just takes off. The trust is there and collective efficacy is prevalent and you can see it. But you had said it in something that you wrote is that collective teacher efficacy is that feeling that we can improve student achievement because of who we are. We believe in the students. We believe that we can get them to a certain point that rises above what their demographic might be. My question is, as I've read that through the years and provided a workshop or two for school administrators of Iowa, how do we know? And you allude to that, and Donahue would call that the evidence of impact. As I'm reading all that, I agree with that. How do we know? My other question is, what is evidence of impact? Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm asking you that question. What, what is it? Is it a goal? Is it a test? Is it, is it, what is that? Because we can all say, let's go get them and run through yeah. the wall, but that only goes so far. 
There are a couple of things. Number one, back to your, your idea about the shared setting the vision. I think that school leaders can work with teachers to set the vision because I didn't have assistant principals. I had my teachers. We had a principal's advisory council, which is what we called it back then. When I created principal's advisory council, I had two co-chairs and they happened to be the union reps. I did that was purposeful behind that because number one, it was symbolic. We had the union reps there and I wanted people to know that I could work with whomever. But number two, the two people that I chose, I had a good relationship with, but they didn't necessarily always agree with me. So I thought that that was really important. So when we're talking about a vision, it needs to be a shared vision or else teachers are not going to be a part of it. They're not going to buy into it. Right. As I get older, I realize that sometimes we overcomplicate what that vision is going to be. What we need to be able to do is look at, and that's why I wrote about it in instructional leadership was you know, we need to, we're probably going to be looking at a couple of things, one being student engagement, because what we know, and Odatola did this research back in the 1970s, which I think is fantastic and still highly impactful to this day, students who are alienated because they don't have an emotional connection to their school community, or they don't have a voice in their own learning. And when I'm doing school climate work, and I look to experts around marginalized populations or indigenous populations, those are populations that haven't always had an emotional connection to their school because the resources we use leave them out and they don't feel like they have a voice in their own learning because they can never bring some their own shared experiences into the school with them. So, you know, student engagement is typically going to be the thing we look for when it comes to your question about the evidence of impact. And that's very much a John Hattie statement. Actually, Jenny and I trained together with John's work and then, you know, we ended up becoming close with John. The whole evidence of impact piece, I'm going to tell you, it depends. Like one of the major things I work on with schools is having a common language and common understanding because often when it comes to student engagement, they're doing walkthroughs or learning walks and they're talking about student engagement, but they might have very diverse views on what that means. Right. I worked for a principal when I was a teacher and student engagement was compliant engagement. He wanted those kids sitting down, not speaking, and he wanted to hear me talk. Because as he said, that's what I pay you for. And when he came into my classroom to see the kids actually engaged in dialogue, first graders, by the way, I will point out first graders engaged in dialogue around learning. That was a very uncomfortable space because he just wasn't used to that or getting it or whatever. We didn't have a common understanding of student engagement. So it's very important that when we talk about student engagement, we develop that, that common understanding together. What is it? You know. And to your evidence question, what I often follow up with is, so if we could paint a picture of student engagement, what would it look like? And that's where you do things like flipping your faculty meetings and model what it is that you want to be able to see. Like when I was a school principal, when we were doing things, when we talked about feedback, I didn't just say to staff, I want to focus on feedback and I'm going to come in and I'm going to look at what feedback you give to your students. No. We needed to develop a sense of an idea of what feedback was together. They needed to bring evidence to show how they put it into action. And then we needed to talk about a better way that we could provide feedback by looking at the examples that we have. That to me is always about the evidence piece is that people come and they look for a list. Give me a list of 10 things that I can collect to show it's evidence. And if, that is always the case, then we're enabling and not empowering. What I would rather be a part of, and this is what I do when I'm coaching, this is what we do when we run workshops, 
this is the discussion we have even with these you know eight week courses I'm doing. What I need to be able to talk about is what is that shared goal that you're focusing on and going through a cycle of inquiry. And then let's talk about evidence you already collect. Is that appropriate? And is there different evidence you can collect? In the book on collective leader efficacy that I've got coming out at the end of the year, I put in some templates where it's, you know, this is what, this is some evidence a leader can collect. This is some evidence a teacher can collect. This is some evidence we can collect from students. But I think it's really about that idea that when we're actually having this discussion in the forefront to be able to say, this is what our focus is gonna be, then we need to be able to say, so what evidence can we collect to see that? If you say student assessment, that's great. That's one of them, that's fine. What else are you gonna collect besides that? And I'm telling, the reason why I'm also saying this is because many years ago, I had a discussion with Tom Gusky, who is someone I look up to a great deal. He's also a friend. But I asked him, how do you raise self-efficacy? And he said, he said, sometimes it makes it seem like self-efficacy is so easy to raise. You just kind of shake your head and you're gonna raise somebody's confidence. He said, no, there are three things that need to be in play. Number one, you have to have a protocol in place. So PLCs, faculty meetings, those are protocols in place. Observations, formal observations, those are a protocol in place, walkthroughs, learning walks, protocols. Number two, is that you have to have evidence teachers trust. And he said, and I actually just interviewed him on a podcast and uh, I interviewed him on Ed Weeks, a seat at the table last year, that he said part of the issue sometimes is that teachers are going to look at teacher-made tests. Administrators are gonna look at standardized tests and there isn't always trust of either one. So when I come back to you and say, it depends on the context, it depends on what goal you're having, it's because in Tom's list of the three things, number two on that list is evidence teachers trust. And only you within your school context can talk about the evidence that teachers trust. You know, there are other books, Doug Fisher, Nancy Fry, Cheryl Ward, they wrote a, a book years ago where they said schools are awash with data, but they don't always know what to do with it. I remember when I started working with Hattie, one of the things that they were very specific about in the visible learning research was, when you're going through a capability assessment with a school district, you don't necessarily offer them new evidence to collect because they may already be collecting evidence. What you want them to do is something with the evidence that they're already collecting. Right. Number three on Tom's list was, you need to see a difference within weeks and not months. The so number one is the protocol in place. Number two is evidence teachers trust. Number three is you need to see a difference within weeks and not months. I think given those three dynamics, that's when you start looking at evidence of impact. My teachers, when I was a principal, we did student-led conferences and we allowed students to do portfolios. They were time consuming, but that was evidence that we were collecting to see how much growth they had made. I was a former first grade teacher. My kids came in, many of them in the city school that I was working in could not write. This was back at a time where the first grade curriculum was not then the kindergarten curriculum. First grade curriculum was actually, you teach kids how to read and write. And I had kids come in, they could only draw pictures at best. And then by the end of the year in their journal, they were writing two pages worth of dialogue. That's evidence to me. Like to me, a sure. journal like that was the greatest evidence I could collect as a teacher because it showed just this. And that was something I reflected through every single week. 
I looked at how much growth are they making with their writing? How much growth, progress monitoring. We used to progress monitor our students every 10 days when it came to literacy, phonemic awareness, phonics. That's evidence, you know, but it really is going to depend on the grade level, the school, the context, the team. And I always go back to Tom's thing, which is evidence teachers trust. And I think for too long, teachers have sort of had th evidence thrown at them and they need to be able to be a part of that dialogue. So I hope that long-winded answer answers your question a bit. <laughs> well, what it did for me is clarify the evidence of, of impact, but also I would agree that in different schools, 10 miles apart, what they value is going to be different. And to determine if they're effective or not or successful, they do have to have their own ways to do that. But trust is such a key factor, isn't it? It is. And not only in the test, but if you trust whatever it is that you're using as evidence, then you trust each other because you're not going to have one without the other. And Well, I think we know also from, and I've done a lot of work in Iowa. You know, I come from New York State and I was very outspoken against state testing because in New York State, when I was a principal, they tied it to teacher evaluation. Sure. Not only did I have to do a point scale every time I, I when I did formal observations, I was supposed to give them point out of 20 points. Talk about trust. It completely eradicates the trust you might have with your teachers, but also their evaluation was tied to state testing. So we also know that that standardized movement hasn't always been beneficial from an evidence of impact place either, because a lot of people will come back and say, you know, standardized tests. I was just having a conversation about the fact that still to this day in 2021, schools will give state testing in March, April, or May, and they don't get the results until six months later. Right. They're in a different grade level. So when we talk about evidence of impact, and many people are going to say, well, standardized tests. No, standardized tests come out like six months after the kids have taken the test. And just because they did well or didn't do well on a standardized test, that isn't always evidence of impact. It needs to be matched up with other things like those authentic assessments we were talking about too. And those are pieces that I think we have to weigh in as well. So in your book, Instructional Leadership, one thing that you noted that when I read it, I went, yep, I agree with this. And that phrase was, instructional leadership is one of the most researched forms of leadership in the past 50 years. But it is as clear as mud because it's difficult to pin down specific, consistent ways of putting it into practice. So my question is, what have you found that those practices are that um, would help to define instructional leadership a little better? Well, that's what I did. And, you know, it was, I was actually giving, I was given a, an hour and a half workshop on collaborative leadership at a research conference in Norway. And somebody had come up to me after about, talked about instructional leadership. And that's where, you know, my books have a steady thread between each. Collaborative leadership, six influences that matter most. One of the influences was instructional leadership. And I wanted to take a deeper dive because so many school districts I was working with would all also say, could you come back one more time and, and keep going with instructional leadership? And I found that there was a sense that they just wanted to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And mm -hmm. what is it? So I, what I did was over time and research, I looked at six. One was implementation. So using a program logic model, implementation was very important. We have to look at how do we implement different things within our, you know, within our school. Number two on there was a focus for learning. And I, I, what I was looking there is in all the learning walks and walkthroughs I did with principals, I didn't always have a sense that they knew what they were looking for when they were going into the classroom. And in fact, there were principals that said, 
we need to be coached on what to look for. Sometimes they were looking for the Pinterest classroom. Other times they were looking for something like cooperative learning, but some of the most impactful research I've come across, Rob Coe out of the UK found that 80% of the time the kids are in our classrooms, they're in cooperative groups, but about 75% of the time they're doing individual learning. So we might go into a learning walk and see kids sitting cooperatively and think, yay, they're doing cooperative learning, when in reality, they might actually just be sitting cooperatively and doing individual right. work. So a focus on learning was really about going deep. And I used Anderson's, it's actually Bloom's revised taxonomy, the research is from Anderson from about 2001. And it looks at factual knowledge, procedural knowledge, conceptual knowledge, and metacognitive knowledge. And I think we have to have deeper discussions about what that looks like in classrooms. I come from the elementary world, so I understand how things need to be age appropriate and developmentally appropriate. I totally see that. But one of the things that I think that discussion can lead to is it's almost like a gateway to depth of knowledge. Those are discussions that principals need to be a part of. And I'm a realist. The reason why I say that is because the bottom line is, as principals, we have to go and do observations twice a year. And if we're only going into classrooms twice a year and we never talk about learning during our faculty meetings, we have zero credibility. And those observations mean nothing. Right. So when we start looking at a focus on learning, we can talk about knowledge dimensions and we can talk about depth of knowledge if that's where we choose to next. That's gonna at least help us build our credibility. The third one on there is student engagement. And I already talked about Otatola's research, but we know that social emotional engagement, academic engagement, very important. So that's a piece of instructional leadership. Instructional strategies. Many times when I'm doing research at workshops, we can find that there is a lot of direct instruction, which is not a bad thing. I think direct instruction completely has its place. But the reality also is that direct instruction is not always going to be the right thing to do at that time because students need to be engaged in cooperative learning. We know that from deep research from a lot of people, including Hattie. So instructional strategies is something that not only we need to look for when we're going into classrooms and talk about with our staff, we need to actually use those to model at our faculty meetings. And then we've got collective efficacy. How do we bring groups together? How do we understand their confidence level? And how do we get them to focus on learning? Because that's what it's all about, a focus on learning, because we know from research over the past few decades, tools are supposed to be a learning organization. And that does not mean we just go in to teach kids. We actually go in to learn from kids, learn from one another. And then the last piece is evidence of impact. And I will say this, what I do when I write a book is whoever I am citing, I actually send the manuscript out to them. So Ken Leithwood was heavily cited. He read over the book. Michael Follin was heavily cited. He read over the book. Vivian Robinson is somebody that I've worked with over the years. I actually edited a book that she wrote. These are people that I don't just you know, use their work, put out a book and say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. I actually take an extra step to make sure that the people I'm citing right. are the people that I ask to look at it and then offer a testimonial. So they're my litmus test. And those are the people who are involved in this too. Very good. We are visiting with Peter DeWitt in this episode of Transforming Education Leadership Lessons. Peter, do you have time for two more things? Of course. What are you curious about right now in the world of education? I am actually just uh, really curious about how we're going to be able to come back together, how we're going to find a balance between the trauma. And I'm very curious about the mental health and well-being of school principals. Not that I'm not sure. curious about teachers, but principals are an interesting group. I wrote a blog about that many months ago. And I think we have to look at 
I'm curious about the fact that I just put out a blog that said 42% of principals want to leave their position. Are we going to let them? I'm curious about the fact that I think in a nation that spends so much time degrading education, we need to do a lot better of a job supporting education. And that means looking at some findings from EPI and NASSP to be able to say, why do we have 42% of principals wanting to leave their positions? And what are we going to do about it? If we care about education that much, then we need to start putting our money where our mouth is. Interesting and really true. What are you reading right now or listening to that our listeners might be interested in? I'm actually reading a lot of research right now. So I'm looking over a lot of different works. So I can't really pinpoint one book in particular, because I think it depends on how I'm preparing for the next discussion, but you can look behind me and, you know, I'm always reading stuff by Vivian Robinson. I'm reading stuff by Michael Fullen. I'm reading, you know, John Hattie and I go back and forth a lot, Jenny Donahue's work. One in particular that I have gotten to know over the past few years, Julie Stern writes work on conceptual understanding and transfer of learning. And I think she's brilliant. So I'm reading actually some of her work right now because we just finished a podcast together too. So I would say those are the people that I'm definitely focusing on. Well, I'm reading this right now. (laughs) Um, And uh, actually I finished it. And Dr. Peterson here at the college and I, more not really I, more her, put a lot of that work into our eight-week course called Instructional Leadership and both thought it was just spot on, exactly what school leaders need to read and consider. And the, the six concepts that you brought up in my mind and through the work that I've done just as an administrator and a leadership coach, those are areas that are very important but maybe lacking. And so when I read the table of contents and then started reading some more, it fits right into where I think instructional leadership should go. And this has just been really good and educational for me. And I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to meet with us. And and I hope we can get you on campus sometime in one form or another. I certainly love my time at Iowa. So that would not be very difficult. I have lots of good friends there. But no, thank you so much for inviting me and for, you know, using the book at the school too. Yeah. Where can we find your work? What's the name of the website? So you can just go to Peter M as in Michael DeWitt and just Google my name and it should come up. Peter, thank you. We really appreciate it. All right, Gary. Thank you so much. Yeah, best of luck to you. You as well. Well, we thank Peter DeWitt for giving him his time and sharing his wisdom as we reflect on leaders that inspire and influence education and our world. So, Leslie, what are some of the highlights from the many things that Peter said today? He gave us so much information, and I think his work in researching and really understanding what's happening in schools and how we're learning and how we learn from that evidence and really apply it is just so, so valuable. So he talked a lot about this idea of of learning loss from from COVID and and his work in really focusing in on the equity issue and also reframing our mind from thinking, okay, we've lost all this learning that really is a deficit mindset so this is where we're at and we can look at that in situations that it's not always covid right covid was this thing that put us all on the map to lose something but that's happening in schools and in in areas already and having that mindset of looking at where are they at now and how can we reach our goals and increase that learning and 
increase the equity. You know, you just made a good comment that this last year has been during a pandemic. So it's really hard to judge what loss is when we've never been through it before exactly. or what the learning loss might be. And maybe it's an attitudinal thing. It's let's pick up from here and, and move on. So, yeah, that was very good. And he really had some great thoughts on, on that idea of collective efficacy and collective leader efficacy. He shared with us three points from Tom Gusky and how to raise that shared belief. That idea that we can all work together and our unified efforts yep. are going to accomplish what we want to do. So in order to raise that, he gave us three ideas. The first one was protocol. What PLCs or observations or walkabouts do you have in place? Yep. Secondly, the evidence that teachers trust. And that's that idea that kind of brings up every school is going to be different. And you really have to work with your educators and with your whole team to determine what do you trust and how do you apply that evidence and, and things like that For too. Sure. And then thirdly, you need to see that difference within a few weeks and not just months. And he made a great point on standardized tests is normally it's not a quick turnaround. And then by the time you get it, is it really applicable? I mean, you have to do some action planning when you get those results. But maybe it's not prevalent right at the time. And and it's a little harder to reach if you have to do it in the fall after everybody's come back. So and then we always like to get kind of pick the brains of people and, and what they're reading. What did Peter leave us there for some authors? Yes, Peter mentioned Vivian Robertson, Jenny Donahue, and Julie Stern to look into. He's He's got a great network, and I imagine those are all um, connecting well into his work. Yep, and you can just download or Google Peter M. DeWitt and can get most of his stuff, which is really good. And he does have a podcast on instructional leadership that is really good. So thanks to all of you for listening to Transforming Education Leadership Lessons. Again, you have a lot of options, and we appreciate you being with us. As a leader in education, you matter, and how you lead matters to a whole bunch of people that you serve on a daily basis. You were created for significance. Thanks to Leslie for co-hosting this and Mike Stokes for the technical help. And for Leslie, Mike, and I, until next time, inspire and influence. (music) 